0: Hello, welcome to the third Weekly Squeak, the 18th of January 2016. These uh, podcast little episodes that accompany my uh, weekly blogs will get longer as time goes on. But I guess it's balancing up the blog post with the podcast and just finding the time to research and write enough to actually then talk about. is time consuming and weekly is... Is regular, so we'll get there eventually. But for now, we'll stick around the 15-minute mark. So this week, I'm going to start with Celebrity Death. Rather unexpected, I'm sure. So It's been already quite a week or a month or a year for Celebrity Death. And I'm certainly not going to be the first or the last to talk about this subject this week or last week. I'm going to mainly talk about Bowie. Firstly because I was a bigger fan of his work or his work has more of a connection to me for reasons I've come to than, say, Alan Rickman and not wanting to uh, lessen his work or contribution but um, I just know less about it. Um, Whilst we're on this subject, I'd also very quickly mention the death of John Bradbury who was a drummer with the specials he actually died on December the 28th in 2015. So I should have mentioned him already, really. And he wasn't part of this new... uh, And I used this phrase already myself uh, on social media. He wasn't part of the new 69 club, as opposed to the old 27 club. But he was actually 62. Um, And he died the same week as Lemmy from Motorhead, but his smaller profile musician, um, his death... ..was mentioned but not mentioned as much. And I'd like to mention it because the Specials were one of the most influential bands... ..to my musical life uh, and remain one of my favourite bands. John was a phenomenal drummer, very solid drummer all of his life. Very, Also very solid in terms of played with the band, never left the band... Despite all their ups and downs and changes of lineup and things like that, he influenced a lot of players, a lot of drummers, not just ska drummers. Mention him as a as a as a drummer they like to emulate, and he took the sort of ska drumming, which you know is hard, but can be quite limited in in style. And he added jazz, lounge music, and even sort of experimented with some early like jungle style rhythms, and bringing the say so rather generic ska drumming into a more mainstream sound. I say the specials were an influence to me musically. Anyone who knows any of my musical output will know that, well, it's never really been any ska music. Um, I did start playing in a scar band in Melbourne that never really went anywhere on guitar, which was fun. But it was more that the specials influenced me to get on stage in the first place. From the attitude, the political attitudes, the motivations um, sometimes musicians have an influence that gets you wanting to be a musician. It doesn't necessarily influence your music, but it's what got you there in the first place. And, um, yeah, I love watching the live clips and reading about the very brief but interesting history of the band. So they were very influential to me. And interestingly, something I, I found out sort of uh, a couple of years after I started playing was there were also a favourite band of my mum's when she was pregnant with me. And she would list... I was born in the summer of 1981, which is when Ghost Town was number one. I think it might have even been number one when I was born, the hot uh, summer of 81 and... Um, the Brixton riots and things like that, and uh, it's it's very interesting to kind of know that it's a band that's sort of been with me from the beginning, <laughs> literally from the beginning. So, yeah, they have that sort of certain uh, place in my life as well, which which I find interesting. Which now brings me in a very roundabout kind of way to talking about Bowie, and it must seem very strange segue, but there is a there is a, a, a justification for it, and. To be honest with you, I've not typically been affected by celebrity deaths. And in fact, I've never been very affected by death. Uh, My aforementioned mother died when I was very young. Um, And so death to me has always been a bit of an inevitable event that... Maybe I've never been particularly emotionally bothered by, which is sometimes a positive, sometimes a negative. But anyway, similar, especially celebrity death. But was and like a lot of other people, as we saw in the news, and it was you know an incredible kind of output of, of news around his death, hit me harder than any other before. I, uh, firstly, I guess, due to uh, his output and omnipresence across generations. And you know, just one of these sorts of figures that's always been there in your life and it's strange to think that they're not there anymore. And again, I know that's not unique to him in the slightest. There's plenty of other celebrities like that, but for some strange reason, he just had something else that affected people more. It's sort of very interesting. Uh, It would be fascinating to understand that a bit more, but that's not a place for me. There were other reasons though. And his death affected me. And these were, again, connections to my life, which is why the special segue was there. So my dad, in one of his many career opportunities, as a, this time as a musician, actually played with Bowie. Way back in South London, uh, and this uh, when he was still called David Jones. And this isn't as impressive as it may sound, because a lot of musicians actually played with him back in those days. Uh, back in South East London, when... Uh, areas of uh, south London were the kind of cool places to be. But this connection and his connection to my kind of hometown areas of Brixton and south and Southwest London made everything feel kind of a lot closer. It sounds strange and maybe... I'm not sure if I'd have the same feelings when the Rolling Stones go because they're from the same sort of areas, but... Eh. So it was that, but also it affected my dad because of this familiarity, loose familiarity he had, and he's also hitting sixty nine in a few weeks. It started making him feel sensitive and vulnerable, and he's been increasingly speaking about his own death the past few months, which and like making funeral arrangements and things like that. Which is, you know, despite what I said about my attitudes to death, it's always a rather odd and awkward conversation to have. So it's kind of why it, it, it hit me harder and. Yeah, it's strange. It's not a feeling I've ever really had before. And, yeah, I can understand now more how people have felt in the past when generally I've uh, dismissed people's outpourings to celebrity deaths. I, I could sort of understand it now because, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'll come back to that topic. Um, just sticking on the artist thing, I was just, it made me wonder which artists of our generation, when I say our generation, while well, I'm... 34, so I guess I'm talking sort of 90s, 2000s, will receive as much adulation as celebration in their deaths. I find it hard to think of anyone, I must admit, who will have the same impact. There's musicians who were famous for a period of time and who are still famous, but I find it hard to think that there will be someone from our generation that in 40 years... It's hard, it's hard to know, of course, because we don't know what they're going to do yet. But I feel like the sort of creative world has changed and maybe there isn't even a space to create people like that anymore. But we'll see. And it would be interesting to hear your thoughts. Like, who alive and creating today do you think could, maybe should even, receive the same response if they died in the next 10, 20 years? And be realistic here. Think about the sort of the, the outputs and influences of some of the people we've mentioned in this podcast so far. When you give me feedback on who you think it could be. And rounding up this sort of segment, um, yeah, the, the cult of celebrity death. As I say it's the first time I sort of understood it. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a human trait. One of the first civilization advances, and uh, I learn a lot about um, civilization history from playing civilization. Of course. Wow. And I'm not being stupid there. I mean, it's actually quite an accurate, clever game is uh, I think in the early versions, anyway, is when you start creating ceremonial burial and things like that, it's a sign that we treat each other as more than just a sort of unit in a species so being affected by death is something we should do and if there are people in the world who have an impact on our lives even if we don't know them that's why they made that impact in the first place to to affect people, to affect lives, to make change so if that change affected your life of course you will feel upset when they die And, again, it's only really this week that it sort of hit me more uh, and I understand it a bit more. And there's obviously celebrities and famous people who I don't understand why people would be so upset over. But I suppose at least I can identify and understand why they might. So, anyway, let's uh, move on from human death (laughs) (laughs) to maybe the death of uh, other things. It's going to be a fairly uh, weighty episode, I think. Um, This is around, and maybe this is a bit clickbaity, but it just sparked some thoughts in my head, which are not fully formed yet, but the news this week of Netflix starting to crack down on VPN users, and hands up, I am one, for reasons I will explain. And this news, to me, feels feels different on on, on many levels. Um, so firstly, I'd like to look at how it affects the life of, say, digital nomads uh, like me. Uh, and I'm not saying that this sort of existence is, is dead, not at all, but there's been a few negatives against it recently. Um, and we have to bear in mind that whilst... To people, lots of people probably listening to this podcast and reading this blog, this sort of digital nomadic lifestyle seems pretty normal now and not unusual to a lot of people. To a lot of the mainstream, it is still unusual. And I've learned this that you know governments aren't really most aren't really geared towards this way of thinking. Government policy, government bureaucracy, isn't really geared towards people who don't decide to stay somewhere and this is manifested in things like healthcare and pension schemes and insurance and stuff like that and this is a whole other factor that people who lead this lifestyle, you know, we probably don't think about but we should think about at some point is when we get to 65, 70 plus, what do we do then? And, I mean, personally I haven't given it any thought and I'm sort of just living for the moment and I think that's a... Common element amongst a lot of people in our generation that we're not thinking about that stuff. What the point is our perspective, and I kind of agree, but it's something to think about. And this is what governments are usually set up to do: is to support, well, support in inverted commas, people throughout their lifestyle, life span. And if you jump from government to government to government to you know from country to country in a life, you never really build up enough credit in any one place to have those options later in life. But anyway, I've digressed slightly. Um, and whilst there's a lot more serious topics around this as well, like the continuing strengthening of and closing of borders at the moment, especially here in Europe, has sort of also hindered the ease of a digital nomad's life. Like, it's still not, of course, impossible, not at all. But it's getting harder and more questions will be asked... And sometimes, to a lot of government officials, what are you doing here, being answered by, I'm just coming for a couple of months, is not actually a satisfactory answer. I even discovered this sort of when I moved beyond my first three months here in Germany. It's like there is no box that you can tick that says, I don't have any work in your country, (laughs) but I have money and don't intend to use your system at all. I don't intend to claim any benefits. Like... To us, that's a perfectly legitimate lifestyle choice. Like, I have money coming in. It's not from a job in your country. But I don't intend to abuse the system in any way. Let me in. To us, that may seem like a fairly satisfactory uh, statement. But to a lot of governments, it isn't. So we have to bear that in mind. But anyway, it it got triggered by this thoughts about uh, Netflix cracking down on VPN usage. And they're very different topics, of course, but they represent this way that maybe the world is slowly turning against this nomadic way of life. Uh, And we have been, in fact, incredibly lucky over the past 20 years. Firstly, with the sort of widespread free, and I use this in terms of free reign, like pretty much able to do whatever we want on the internet, fairly open travel possibilities, and a widespread attitude that people moving around is a good thing and it's good for economy and stimulating education and exchange and things like that. And for those of us who like to take advantage of this sort of lifestyle and who don't really consider ourselves or identify ourselves as being part of any particular nation, citizenship or home, it's a question I often get asked a lot, is where are you from? And I don't really know what to say to people anymore. It's like I can tell you where I was born, I can tell you what my passport says, But that doesn't necessarily describe where I'm from, where I am. And even in a sort of tech world, sometimes when you say, I'm from Berlin, and they look at you like, what? You don't sound German? What do you mean? And it's, you know, these notions of home and citizenship are still quite old-fashioned in some respects. But for people like us, I think I include myself in this, the internet has actually been a miracle for us to, to live this sort of lifestyle. And, you know, if we don't always want to access the services of the country that we're currently in, but those of another or multiple ones, if we've lived in multiple countries and identify with multiple cultures, Netflix and services like it have been great for this and using a fairly simple-to-use VPN or similar service so we could switch backwards and forwards to suit our cultural requirements. And also bear in mind, like, mixed couples, couples with uh, people from two different backgrounds, living in a third country. That's a classic example. VPNs and Netflix suited this lifestyle very well. And there's also the argument I heard, for, I think, from um, Tom Merritt on... Uh, one of his tech shows around this idea of if you have a driving license or indeed a passport, I think driving license is maybe a better example, from France, and you go to the u s, you don't suddenly have a driving license of the u s you still have a driving license of France, and maybe digital services could should be considered in a similar way. That's sort of one thought that it should suit. You as the person, not you as the geography. And I've actually often noticed this as well in terms of advertising, that when I travel to other countries, I'm advertised in the language and culture of that country. It makes sense, of course, but to me, it's useless. Firstly, I could probably not understand the advert, and why am I likely to use that service? That, I mean, it's a minority of people, but it's a wasted advert on me. But anyway, um, of course I understand about licensing and Mm -hmm. I was a musician in the past. I completely understand licensing. It doesn't mean I agree with it or like it and I have been a long proponent for some sort of modern model to suit the way that content is now consumed. But I'm also pragmatic and realistic and realise that it's what we have right now. And for Netflix to be taken more seriously and viable as a business as it grows geographically, it needs to toe the line a bit more. And I think for them, and I give them the benefit of the doubt here, I realise that for them to meet their sort of hopeful end goal of having a universal catalogue and kind of international licensing, to make that a reality, they first need to make some compromises to the industry. But I get the impression, and I think we could probably all agree, that the concessions they concede to the industry, the industry then conceding to them will probably take a hell of a long time. And whilst I also know that there's always going to be ways around these restrictions that are planned to be put in place, it's another little setback for those of us who like to live a little bit left of mainstream. And as a non-US resident but as an English speaker, you Always feel you always feel like you get secondary offers to the US. Everything offered globally is always second to the US, and you pay the same. And it makes you feel a little marginalized. I know these are first world problems, but this is what we're talking about. And I think this is a topic that I will be revisiting repeatedly through 2016. Um, what is positively or negatively affecting this kind of nomadic lifestyle? Okay, my last topic is the enthusiastic amateur. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this topic before or not anywhere, but it's sort of an experiment in personal branding and maybe a book or project idea for the future that I've been pondering on. It's not ready yet, but I was again reminded of the motivation behind the idea this week uh, whilst I was playing um, some board games. So in summary, I've always been a generalist. I get bored very quickly. I like to know a little bit about lots of things. And to use the catchphrase for the project, uh, learn how to excel in being average at everything. But I do mix with a lot of intense, enthusiastic people, skilled people, highly skilled, highly experienced people. Technology, games and music are all areas full of people with these sort of um, extreme interests and passions and experiences in their field. And I just want to be very clear, I'm not criticizing this, I'm just stating a fact. I personally have no issue with not being an expert in anything and in some ways it has worked for me quite well and I'm sort of learning the best ways to use that skill set. But I do frequently meet people who seem surprised that I don't share their intensity or that anyone doesn't share their intensity. You know, Like, what do you mean you don't know blah, 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 blah about X, Y, Z? and they seem genuinely surprised that someone involved in this field wouldn't know that. This may, of course, say more about them than me, but it is one of the worst aspects of being the enthusiastic amateur, and that is the one of feeling inadequate about your levels of knowledge sometimes. And I'm also aware of this uh, imposter syndrome, but I think I'm being more realistic here where there are are times when you, you, know, you genuinely don't know. It's not that you don't think you know, you don't know. Like I often uh, sit in a room and feel quite inferior when you hear discussions going on and you sort of wish that you had spent the past few years deep diving into a topic instead of just scattering your knowledge around a variety of topics. But, yeah, that's just a little aspect and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this uh, what sort of life choice have you made? Are you an enthusiastic amateur or are you... Uh, I have to think of a word for the opposite, I guess. But or are you an expert, a topic expert who've done your 10,000 hours and knows a lot about one thing but maybe not a lot about other things? What are the advantages and disadvantages of these sorts of choices? Which would you rather be? Which are you? I'd be interested to hear. So... Um, I think I will stop there. You can also in the blog post read some of the other articles I wrote this week. I have written a few, as always. Um, And I will talk to you again next week. So cheerio for now.